You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Cesar Chavez. Welcome, Jimmy Santiago. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank Elizabeth for all the work that she's done, and also her, uh, the people that work with her in getting me here. And uh, I've got to tell you, I've been treated really, really nice. Uh, I have uh, I have five children, so all children are welcome. And uh, there was times when I had to travel to uh, Mexico and even to Europe, and I used to have to take my kids in diapers with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they uh, I used them in certain ways uh, to help me. Like if I was standing at the airport and I needed a ticket. Mm-hmm. I would very gently pinch my son's legs and he would scream really loud. <laughs> and not change his diaper. <laughs> and, and the poop really stunk. <laughs> and I would tell the people I can't change it until I get the ticket. And then I decided, well, this might even work in court, you know, with the judge. <laughs> and every time the judge went to tell me how much money I had to pay for the parking tickets, I would pinch his little butt. <laughs> And the judge finally ultimately just said, get him out of here, just get him out. <laughs> um, and uh, so kids are welcome. Um, it's really cool that I have old recordings from this area. When I came uh, 12, 15 years ago to read, and my sons and uh, were young. And it's really cool to hear my kids on the tape recorders in the archives. They're now grown men, and well, the, the, the boys are, the girls are still young, but they they're now grown men, and, and uh, it's kind of neat to know that that history is preserved there. And the kids kind of went with me everywhere I went. So kids are welcome. If they cry, that's what kids do. I was over at the, uh, I was over at the, what was that place called, the ranch? Rancho Cielo. Rancho Cielo. By the way, I stayed up till about 4.30 or 5 this morning with Garland Thompson working on his poetry. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I don't know where he gets his energy. But we were in our hotel room like Kerouac and Cassidy, and I can name all kinds of different other writers that held up in, in hotel rooms and, and, and went back and forth with their poems. I didn't think I was going to do that anymore. And I used to do it all the time when I was in my 30s and 40s, but in your 50s, you kind of like to get to bed by 9. <laughs> It was 4.30 and he was telling me, what do you think about this? <laughs> I, could, I didn't want to tell my can you see the lines, I'm so tired. <laughs> I would say, no, this is good. Um, so I was there and I told the kids, you know, if you have to commit crimes, um, if you're going to have to commit a crime, um, it would be wonderful if people could go to jail for stealing books. It, it would be really cool if everybody <coughs> in Folsom and San Quentin were there for hijacking tractor trailers and books <laughs> so they could take it down to the barrios and the 
projects in the community centers and hand out books. Uh, it would be really, really nice. Because we live in a culture that, uh, when I first started about 10 years ago to, to, uh, to start to give books away, I didn't know where to get books for free. And I gave my, my cousin a ride to AA about 5 o'clock in the morning. And as I was talking to him, the guy in the city worker's shirt said, I can give you truckloads of books. And he said, uh, be, be here in a week and I'll have a big truckload. He got the books at the landfill, at the city landfill. So we throw a lot of books away. Uh, and this whole go green thing, I think of one of the kids, you know, it, I was talking to the kids the other day that if, if you want to get, if you want to get rich, don't, I mean, dealing drugs is probably the worst thing you could ever do. But you're not going to get rich. And, and I've, I've seen 11-year-old kids with gray hair. I've seen 15-year-old kids with not a single friend that they trust. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible life. It's like, if you decide to deal drugs, it's like having shackles on your legs. It's like having a key in your pocket to undo the shackles and deciding that you're not gonna ever free yourself from the shackles, that you feel comfortable in shackles. That's pretty dumb, isn't it? I mean, me, it was like, I, I, I tried to escape twice from prison. I didn't get out, but <laughs> I thought there has to be another way decided to hit my head up against the wall, so I decided to go to books. And I became freer than anybody ever was capable of being free. It was unbelievable how free I became. I became so free that when a Chicano guy stood up and was fighting an African-American, I was so free after reading books that I stood up and said, you will not fight in front of me. <laughs> And it was like a revolutionary statement. They said, what do you mean not fight? Get the hell out of our way. You're not going to fight in front of me. You're not going to let you two people fight. And they were my friends. They didn't want to hurt me. They had shanks. They could have stabbed me. And I said, you're not going to fight each other. Not while I'm here. And neither one of them went to the hole. I was taken to the hole. <laughs> <laughs> and then... You spend what? You spend about a good 21 years of your life fighting every single day, trying to get the attention of somebody. You know? Uh, we used to, uh, the way that we were able to deal with our emotions, we would slap each other really hard in the face. Like if we, in the orphanage, if our mom or our uncles didn't come to see us, we'd go to the cafeteria and shove one of the kids off the, off the chairs and knock them on the floor. And the nuns would say, wow, how can you do that? Well, that was our way of saying, I feel really bad that my mom didn't come today. And I'm hurting, so I'm going to make you hurt too. I'm going to push you. That's my way of expressing myself, you know? And so we learned to slap box each other a lot. And that was our therapy. It was really weird. But it, it worked, you know? Now, one of the interesting things that I told the kids was that if you really want to make a lot, a lot of money, solve the problems that are beleaguering the cities, like clean water. If you were to, if you were able to go into my neighborhood and say to me, 
I'm going to cut your electricity bill by three quarters. And I'd be like, how are you going to do that? Because I could sure use it because it's about seven or $800 a month. And if you can cut my payment down to 150 dude, I'm with you. Or if you can come and say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, be able to get your house and fix it without you having to pay anything. And, and I'm, not only that, I'm going to make sure that the electricity that's excessive, you get to sell back to the grid. So the city of Albuquerque will be paying you, the city of Santa will be paying you money. If you can do stuff like that, I told those kids at the ranch up there, you'd be so rich it won't even be funny. You know, if you can make something up like that, that helps people save money, it's amazing. And they're at that age where they can go anywhere they want to go. The entire compass, 360 degrees is theirs. It's not mine anymore. I have my, my life's a little bit limited now. I have certain things I have to tend to and stuff. But their lives are completely open, you know? So so I really urge those kids over there to start thinking green, you know? And uh, don't just leave it up to the people who go to MIT to come up with our solutions. I really, really, really would like to see people in the body come up with, uh, with uh, solutions, you know? Like, if you have gangbangers, and I, I grew up with them, they're some of the smartest people in the world. Some of the smartest. And some of the sweetest people in the world, too. We used to be at night alone and stuff, and some of these vatos were so cool, they would like, like they would like reach out and say, hey man, it's gonna be okay, dude. You don't have to cry, it's gonna be cool. In the morning they would say, well, I would say like, we're gonna eat. Or the street kids, and they said, no, don't worry about it, man. We'll take care of it. And they were so innovative in their thinking and so, but they had to defy society because society was not treating them very good. They would come by and the police would say something, insulting to them, stuff like that. Well, I was one of those kids when the police came by and said something insulting. I'd fight the guy right away, step up right away. And it was really, a, really, never want to fight because I always ended up in jail, always. And the policeman went off to his family and had a nice meal, went out to play basketball at the gym, all that stuff. I ended up in a cell looking out in the street thinking, dang, why, why is it that every time I try to do something, it, it just doesn't work? And it's crazy, but when I was in prison, and I, I did not want to work unless I could go to school. And they said, you can't go to school. I dropped out of ninth grade. And I said, well, I'm not going to go along with the program anymore. I can't. I've got to learn how to read and write. I've got to understand why I'm here. I don't know why I'm here. Because my grandma said I was a good person. But the judge said I was a horrible menace to society. i got to know what's going on. So I wanted to read and read the books that informed the judge that gave him the opinion that I was a menace. Because my grandma didn't think so. My grandma said, man, you're a beautiful child. And it's strange that when I said I'm not going to work, unbelievable. I had all the guards coming to my cell. I had the warden coming to my cell. I was getting, I was getting personal invitations to get my butt kicked every day by the guards. I had all the attention in the world. I had the warden bringing me into his office saying, you know what? We're not beyond killing you, kid, if you don't go along with the program. Because if any convict gets the idea that they don't have to work, they can shut this prison down. And I'm like, wow. All I did was sit on my nightgown. <laughs> and I created all this battle. <laughs> I said, what if I just lay in bed tomorrow? I just turn over and get on this battle. See now? What if I stop eating? 
what will that do? So I begin to think, the less I do physically, and the more I do spiritually, enormous effects. It was unbelievable. By the, by the fifth year in prison, I had the warden telling me, we are going to send you to Safford. Golf courses, I get to wear my street clothes. I mean, they were willing to do anything to get me out of the prison because I did not participate in the destruction of Jimmy Santiago Bach. I was not gonna do it. I was not gonna do it. You know what I'm saying? And it just threw a wrench in the machinery. I don't know what the power of books are, but I do know that my son, Isai, at six years old, will not go to sleep unless I read him books. There's such a huge part of his life. It's just a, and he's, he's amazing, he's amazing. I was telling the story the other day, I was, in front of, I was at the Houston airport, and there was these three gentlemen behind me, and Lou Dobbs was on the TV saying how Mexicans were the reason why everything was wrong in the world, <laughs> right? Why Martha Stewart stocks didn't go up, it was the Mexicans' fault. <laughs> Why they didn't find any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, it was the Mexicans' fault. You know? Why, uh, you know, it just went on and on. And Esai, I didn't say a thing to him, but he's been loved and nursed. Esai tells me, Papi, where does the name Chicano come from? And I know you can go to Berkeley, you can go to Stanford, you can go to anyway, you can go anywhere, Michigan, anywhere. And they have these really beautiful, long, incredible books about the history of the Chicano work. And I say it comes from Chi Chi. <laughs> and he says, Como que Chi Chi papi, que chingao. <laughs> Chi Chi says, not one of your jokes, is it? <laughs> I said, no, mijito. I said, I said, you, you like Nanu. He used to call mother's breast Nanu. I call him Chichi, Chicano. And Jose Montoya actually took one of my phones where I said, And he put it into one of his songs, right? But I thought to myself, when was the time that I felt most secure in the world? When my mother had me right there. And when was the time that I was like entitlement creature, a monster of entitlement? If my jefita didn't give me the, the chinchi, I would scream. I deserve it, vieja. I know. <laughs> and she would bring it running to me, right? And I'd be like, and then, you know, it's like you get, you're held, you're entitled, and you, you, the first feeling you get as a child that you deserve everything you want is that feeling when you get that chinchi, and it's like, vieja te cae, just get this thing down, right? That's how rich people feel when they're born and then they go into the society. It's like, I want that, I want that, I want that, and I want that. That's how we all feel when we're born at our mother's breast. We have that great feeling that we're being nourished and nurtured and loved and attended to. And then something horrible happens. Mother says, you can't have it. <laughs> what? <laughs> and you try screaming for two months straight, it doesn't work, right? And then you get used to the fact that life is not gonna be a bowl of cherries for me, right? But interestingly enough, if you're going to pick lettuce, if you're going to pick lettuce in the fields, then I say you should have the money to go into a store. You should have the right to go into a store, and you should be honored and respected to go into a store. 
and look at the lettuce in the bins and buy it. The problem with our economy and our society is that the people who pick and plant the lettuce often are afraid to go into grocery stores to buy it. That's where the dichotomy, and that's where the contradiction breaks down. The system breaks down. It's odd. But you will work in my yard to do my garden. But when the sun goes down, don't let yourself be seen. Isn't that crazy contradictions? Well, I wrote this poem called Singing at the Gates. And it's about La Raza, where I come from in the villages. No pope nor priest could more enhance my life than Mexica smiles and Incan eyes. Those startled sparrow eyes peering over Papa's nesting shoulder, entering the santuario. Her father's back to me, the little brown baby girl hugging Papa's neck, her face pressed against his white shirt collar, as it has been for a thousand years. Little girls and little boys pressing their faces on Papa's neck. From the Mayans to the Incans, to the Aztecs, to the Mexicans, to the Chicanos, to the Cholos, to the homies, we've carried and carry our infants through government massacres, forced marches off our lands, to the present in fiestas, low-riding gatherings, our children clinging to our arms and bodies for safety. A continuous, unseen line from the beginning of mestizo birth, walking across America long before the Europeans arrived, our arms circle our loved ones in perfect and beautiful in a New York baseball shirt, chain, and crucifix down our chest. La Ruca wearing brown pride workout T-tops. Black net gloves, wrist to elbow, tandito hat with feather, tight black shorts, bobby socks, platform spike heels, low riding mamacita que veo down the dream cruise. Y pues, look around. Just look around and see the pensive sombreros, rancheros con palos en los files. Scooping shovel after shovel of dirt, pretty la sequia. Soil scent fills your nostrils, aging veterano. And I wonder what palabras are whispered to you by the rain, the viento, sage, yerba, alfalfa, calvacitas, boots and jeans worn down and faded by day-long plowing. Y te digo la neta, in cities along the Rio Grande, Burque, Santa Espa, Taos y Cruces, locos scrawl graffiti duels branching on adobe walls predicting a cold winter. Y mujeres gather at la cantina for a wedding. Clap and sing, close eyes, open mouths, faces para música. So much erotic sensuality in their waist, legs y nalgas. Backpacking Chicano students roam the plaza crowds in Santa, where señoritas flick Spanish fans over heavy lidded eyelashes. Y las niñas tie roses in their hair, madrecitas clutch homespun woolen shawls. Crowds tiptoe to see the singer and the musicians over the heads of others, while the woman in the wedding dress leans toward the photographer. Rosary weaving through her fingers, silver crown on her toretted hair, white of her teeth, wider than even her wedding dress. I sing at the gates about the beauty of my rasa. While police arrest a boy for wearing his baseball cap cocked to the side, stigmatized thug for wearing a goatee and mustache, Tattoo of the Archangel Gabriel on his arm, chain around his neck, Nike hoop shirt, leaning against a 45 coupe door, hood mural with Tonancin, sunglasses highness with long black hair chilling inside. I praise him for never having forgotten their cultura or ancestral roots, wearing papa's hand-me-down khakis, warmed by a wood stove surrounded with pious paintings and mama's weaving loom, 
Some eventually lose their land to the casino slots. Some mourn at roadside altars senselessly murdered where I kissed the wreaths on barbed wire fences and signed myself in prayer and marched behind three priests bearing crucifixes in a procession. And after the solemn benedictions, I sit my woman on my knee and fondle her breasts in her memory because they too love their women. And I praise cowboys swinging their ropes, soft leather saddle rubbing with the horse's clip-clop. And I take my youngest son to the Matachines in the sacred Chicano Pueblo, past the Mayan turquoise jaguar mass, 3,000 years old, around and fast for two days. I pray and I sing, I pray and I sing, I pray and I sing for the five-year-old girls in flamenco dance hoop skirts ruffling hands high as they kick and give the roosters yelp. Serape adults clap and hats fly while the old men kneel before the rebel priest wearing a well-used cowboy hat, a Chicano priest flanked by two stout men holding candle staffs aloft praising the cottonwood tree. And I amble past the barrio yards where vandals hammer statues to smithereens one beheaded Jesus, another one trampled fencing as they fled, and I recall I started my learning from Tio Solis. His small adobe home displaying more religious statues than a church, and the special one, El Niño de Atocha, had his own small altar, mat for shoes, tiny pictures of our familia La Plebe on the walls, carving of La Malinche, Cortese Puta, who rather let him send her kids to Spain for an education, she drowned them, rather than have them Europeanized. And I learned dancing with the gypsies in the sierra, with the old men in the suits and the ribbons and the wooden swords and the tin mirrors. And I danced past crumbling adobes, rusting truck hulls, the El Campo Santo and knee-high weeds, wearing my feathered bishop's bonnet. Scrolled with paper, I scuffed my cheap black shoes in the dust and gravel singing, hey, oh, nah, hey, no, all the way down to the twilight river trails following the young girl in the white crinoline first communion dress, asking spirits, por favor, Bless this niña's journey and take care of her God. And no mountain hawk has more courage or fierce truth than the vatos who come from the norte and the south and the east and the west. All of them tattooed lowriders dressed in swaying cloths like Mayan healers who've walked beside mothers to a hundred burials for young locals shot by police or rival gangs who kneel to take rocks from the dirt to make crosses for the fallen brothers and sisters rock crosses <coughs> all over Aslan symbolizing desperation, union, faith, identity. Yo te digo, generation after generation after generation, La Raza's people priest wears a bandana, stations himself along La Gente, rattling tambourines, wearing matachin masks from the ancient 90-year-old abuelitas who make, a, who make who we are burn bright, unfold and rumble deep, deep rumble to the young altar boy, peering through the crowd for his primo. Deep rumble to the Chicana nun kissing Christ's feet. A deep rumble as we unfurl banners of San Martin y San Isidro Lavador, who gives our fields abundant harvest to the penitentes and morradas chanting ancient Moorish Indio alabados by candlelight to La Palomia and a hundred small churches all across America kneeling in pews appealing to Christ for mercy, murmuring the deep rumble of our love. And we stand together, great and small, Mentally ill next to the lesbian aunt. Pinto next to the teacher. 12-year-old Tecato's daughter next to the community center fighter. Mother with a hundred lovers next to an essay who vows never to retreat. Proud Santero with his retablos firme vato. I lose myself in all of you. In the tiniest capilla in the farthest reaches of El Llano. 
for an infant who never survived the winter because there was no medicine, I lose myself in you. I am the sand beneath that child's head in the dirt. I am the bonfire log that flames in a man's backyard as he stands with a stick in hand thinking of his life. The widow who proudly shows off her mother's photograph framed in which she whittled and shaved herself. I celebrate you, Rasa. I celebrate the virtues and the customs you have defended. Despite the colonialist rampaging to kill every one of you, you survived. Madre clinging to babies and arms and kneeling before crosses, you survived. Jefe hoisting your sons on your shoulders and riding them around the yarda. You survived Amante waiting outside church for your novia. You survived niños playing in the churchyards on the steps, on the rails. You survived Bato Locos with the hat and the tank top t-shirt and the polished shoes, leaning on haunches and arm on the crooked leg. Very cool, carnalito. Besides your cronda, low rider, you survived Abuelita smiling under the apple tree. So grand and open and happy, a smile like it was a wheat field on fire. Singing our skill with mud and rock and building adobes are carving the finest, finest figures of wood, are cultivating fields to offer huge crops to feed the world. You survive intact. Intact is the older brother's love for the younger. Intact is love proving we are men and dying foolishly. Pisteando with our compas and fighting each other, sometimes killing one another. Our cultural past and heritage runs through the boys through the women, wrapped in thick coats and beanie caps, riding their horses in the pueblos of Nuevo Mexico. In the cowboy strumming his electric guitar and the young fat apple cheek boy in a hooded sweatshirt and in the brother and the sister picking piñones in the mountains and in the kids burning rubber on their bicycles in the church parking lot and in the two elderly women dressed in black with iron strong hearts and hummingbird souls, old and new merge, expand and spread, riding tractors and lowriders and Harleys T-shirts and leathers, lost in the fiesta of life, lost in the fiesta crowds or alone on the porch, still using wood stoves and suspenders, still working at the railroad in the greasy and smoke-charred overalls, capped and stubble, decaying hundred-year-old ranchos, crack and splinter on the prairie, while grandchildren of farmers who have lived there march in the urban centers of L.A. and San Francisco, Oakland and Salinas chanting, Yalasta, Yalasta, and newborns scream their arrivals, and fathers with their wrist chains and tattoos cling to their little loved ones at the parks. And the circle widens with tribal drums beating from every heart, gourds blowing and rattles rattling from every soul. That we have always been here, unfolding my lips to sing, to sing your beauty, Rasa, and the resilience of an agave giant petal that you all are holding you up like all the desert plants to the raindrops, moistening your thirst for freedom and respect, quenching your hearts to bloom at every entrance. Te digo, Raza, show up. Quench your hearts at every entrance, every gate, every door, in every city. up here. It's a kind of an interesting thing here. This poem here, uh, it's the first poem I ever wrote. And uh, I remember that um, I had a girlfriend by the name of Teresa. And I didn't have a mother. So when I met Teresa, uh, 
I gave her the horrible, horrible burden of being my mother. You know how much women like that? <laughs> if they could, if you could, if you could, if you could illustrate their thoughts, and you see a young guy like me get a really super nice buka, and I want her to be my mom, because I never had one. If I could see her thoughts, she would have had like a frying pan come right out of me right here. That's not what I'm here for. I'm, I'm a young woman. I want to I try my journey. I don't want to be tied down to you. But that's how it was, you know? And, and, and she was just as dysfunctional as I was. And she didn't love me. But I loved her a lot. And everywhere she went, she screwed whoever was there. But not me. <laughs> so my friends would come and tell me, Santiago, you don't want to go behind the house or the truck. And, I'd be, and the only way that I could deal with pain, because I had no language, was to tell my camarada, no tienes nota, no tienes tequila. Algo para. I don't want to deal with the emotions coming up in me, you know? And my camaradas were really good people who say, Santiago, don't go in the back room, bro, because your heart will be broken. I'm like, I know, okay. So I love this woman so much. And everybody got her but me. And then I went to prison. And I thought, cool, that's it. I might have been like, uh, I wanted her to be my girl so bad that I kidnapped her at gunpoint and took her to Wattage, thinking she was going to like it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're going to be with me, baby. I mean, that's how, like, I thought she thought she would think I was doing a heroic act. <laughs> I mean, I was lost. I was not the James Dean that I thought I was. <laughs> and then, and then, I would steal cars for her to prove to her that, that I loved her. And when she asked me, Santiago, you have a new car every day. And I said, yeah, yeah, the boss, I got the money, you know? <laughs> It never occurred to me that I never had a key for the cars. It never occurred to me that she saw the wires underneath the dashboard. I was like a really dumb liar. So I went to prison and I decided to write a poem. And I decided, since I didn't know how to read or write, that I would I would use uh, I would take the stuff out of the Bible that God created the world and God created the and say that Teresa did. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, if everybody reads this Bible and they like it, then she's really going to dig this poem, you know? And then Bonafide, the Vatu was sitting next in the next cell to me, said, no, you can't because once she finds out you stole from the Bible, then she's going to think you're a dog. <laughs> so I was lost. And then he said something that terrified me. He said, dude, you got to write about your feelings, man. I was like, ooh. <laughs> when I was about five years old, and I got I got the hell beat out of me by my brother, one of my brothers, because I was crying, and he said to me, "If you're going to survive in this world, something you never, ever, ever show weakness or let people know that you're hurting." And I was like, and you know, I, I lived with my grandma in the Yano, in a little village where we were sheep herders. My grandpa was a janitor and a sheep herder. And he also worked in the fields. And you know, little kids put things together. Like every time I would see Caucasian people uh, come to the door, I thought they were cool. 
But my grandmother would say, run to the back, run to the back. Abajo de la cama, go, go. I'd be like, who's catching up? Well, what's wrong with these white people, you know? <laughs> and that happened repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. And my, in my little head, I decided that they were probably devils. <laughs> Why would my grandma tell me to run in the back? Now I'll show you how little kids on the street get their education. We're put into an orphanage, and, 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 and we're on the third floor, and there's rain coming in from the, sea, from, the, from the top. And it's an orphanage for Indians. It's the Indian school in, in Burke. And they're all Chicanos, Indios, Mestizos. And we're all up there. And there was not, uh, I never saw white people, except to come pick up my deals for work. You know, they would come by in these big trucks, and my deal, all my deals would, he would go like that, and my deals would get in the back of the pickup and go to the field, right? I never got to speak to one. So it's thundering and lightning and all that stuff, right? And I'm crying and crying and crying for my mother. And one of my brother, my brother Milo, comes, the master, he comes and says, you can't cry, can you? Or else, you know, you're going to be in a lot of trouble, so he slaps me. Ah, I'm about five years old. I'm sitting on the bed, and it's dark, and then <laughs> lightning illuminates the whole room, then dark, and then lightning, right? And I'm sitting there screaming. I don't care how many times he hits me, I'm going to cry. So I want my mom. And then it's dark, and then when the light goes on again, there's a white dude sitting next to me, a little kid. <laughs> and I think this is it. <laughs> the devil has come to get me. <laughs> he come to get me, right? But the devil didn't act the way devil is supposed to act. The devil said, it's going to be okay. I thought, what? Is this like one of your temptations? <laughs> no, it's going to be okay. And then I said, and then the devil went even further and said, hey, I'm going to take you with me to the playground tomorrow. We're going to swing. I was like, wow, they have fun in hell, no? I don't mind swinging. Let's get it on, you know? I swing, right? So I found out that this guy was cool. And it made me think, why is grandma, why did grandma always chase me to the back, you know? So as much as I love my grandma, my abuelita, and adore her, she was a racist. And I had to recorrect that in my life. Because I didn't want to live in a world where I cut up half of the people in my life. I wanted to bring them in. And I did that over and over and over, in prison, this and that. The one thing that I couldn't figure out, and never had, never could figure out, was Teresa. I mean, you can't figure out love. You just got to get standing in front of the tractor trailer on the highway and say, hit me, baby. <laughs> and there's no figuring it out. There's no answers, no solutions, there's no directions. It just happens. I happened to fall in love with a lady who went out with every single guy in the world except me. She was my girlfriend. And I had to drink a lot and smoke a lot of mota. And I had to do a lot of heroin. I had to, I was, I was heavy into the heroin. It was the only way that I could deal with her doing that. So now I had to write her a letter, a poem from prison saying, please wait for me. I know that I was stupid. I know I never had a job. I know I don't have an education, but I'm gonna get an education. And I'm gonna get a job. I'm going to be a good man, and we're going to have a nice family, and we're going to live in Salinas, and people are going to like it. <laughs> I said all of that in my head, and Bonaparte said, you got to write that down. But he says, you got to be honest. And the one thing that I couldn't tell Teresa, I could not tell her, I am nothing, and I have nothing. I could not do that. I'm not going to say that. 
I'm going to say I have a new car, even if it's a lie. I'm going to say I got money, even if it's stuff that I robbed. I'm not going to tell her I don't have nothing. Because when I say I got nothing, then I myself am stepping on, on the cockroach, you know? I don't want to say that. I don't want to hurt. I don't want to, you know? But Bonafide said, you got to be honest to me. So this is what I wrote. I wrote this poem. First honest poem ever. I am offering this poem to you since I have nothing else to give. Keep it like a warm coat when winter comes to cover you, or like a pair of thick socks the cold cannot bite through. I love you. I have nothing else to give you. So it is a pot full of yellow corn to warm your belly in winter. It is a scarf for your head to wear over your hair, to tie up around your face. I love you. I want you to keep it. Treasure this as you would if you were lost. Needing direction in the wilderness, life becomes more mature. And tucked away like a cabin in the dense trees, come knocking and I will answer, give you directions that you warm yourself by this fire, rest by this fire, make you feel safe because I love you, guys. And this is all that I have. This is all that I have to give. And all anyone needs to live and to go on living inside when the world outside no longer cares if you live or die, remember that I love you. After that poem, nothing happened. <laughs> you know, I wanted immediate action, you know, immediate gratification. Here's a pistol, and you got money, I want it. I wrote the poem, and I asked Bonafide, how do you address it? I addressed it, I sent it to my sister. I told my sister, if you know where Teresa is, give this to her, right? So she was in Chicago at the at architectural design school. I had no visitors there in prison, because I didn't want anybody visiting me. I lived in the dungeon and I didn't put on clothes for three years. I just had my boxers on because it was so hot in Arizona, I didn't have to put on clothes. So when the guard came through the cell block and said, 32581, you got a visit, I thought, well, I know it's not for me, but I haven't put on my boots since I got to prison. I'm going to try them on, you know, and my pants. So I put, and I, you know, the sun and, the, and all the sky. So I put my clothes on, walked across the yard, went to the visiting room. And it was amazing when I first smelled women's perfume, even if it was really cheap. <laughs> no, I walked in, and you cannot imagine how blessed I felt to see women's breasts, see their lips, see lipstick. It's amazing. See little children jumping up on the water fountain. I was like in paradise and created by God, where everything was an overabundance of stimulation in my senses. And all I could do was stand there and go, what a beautiful world. What a beautiful world. Because for the last three and a half years, all I had was bars and concrete. There was all this beautiful softness around me, right? So I sit down, and I'm waiting, and I think my brother is going to come and see me now, right? And I didn't want my brother to come see me, none of my brothers, because they were very hot-tempered, and I was afraid they were going to hit the guards or something once they saw me, because they really loved me, and they didn't care. If they saw me behind bars, they'd start going hitting the guards, and that'd be that. They'd be in prison with me, right? Uh, and that's what happened that night. Actually, my brother went to the motel and he, and, he, and he burned it to the ground. And he had a pistol and he shot and he was on the, on the run. Because he saw me in jail. And he said, you don't deserve to be here someday. Anyway, it wasn't my brother. It was Teresa. And I could not believe that a poem would make her come from Chicago to see me. 
Hot cars didn't do it, money didn't do it, <laughs> drugs didn't do it, fighting didn't do it, nothing did it. Just a bunch of stupid words put on paper made this woman come all the way across America. I was blown away by the power of poetry. But I was also blown away by how ugly she was. <laughs> it was the first time in my life that I didn't have alcohol or drugs in my system. <laughs> and she looked like a tractor trailer that got in a crash with a wall. And I thought, gee, I thought I love I love that. <laughs> And then I realized another thing. I realized that when you read uh, Madame Bovary, when you read Lorca, when you read the great Russian poets and the great Uruguayan poets and the Salvadoreños, and you read the Mexican poets and you read the Chicano, every single poem I read about a woman, I didn't know that words could make your brain change. I didn't know that the prostitute I was in love with no longer was going to satisfy me. I now loved women who had a brain and who held conversations and who were elegant and sweet and nice and didn't do drugs. I love those kind of women now. After three and a half years of reading about them, I wanted, I, I, I thought that Essa was going to be one of those women. And she walked through the door, she had that crazy little glazed look after you do math, and you know, that the person's not really in there. And I saw her walk to the door and I thought, oh, that's not what I want. I don't want this kind of woman to be my woman, you know? And then she had the little thing and a little thing and I don't want this, you know? And, to, and then when I walked across the yard back to myself, I felt horrible sorrow because literature and poetry destroyed my illusions. But they also created truths. And so now I had to find the woman that was going to make me happy. And she was out there in the world somewhere. You know what I'm saying? And it was a beautiful thing. Literature did that for me. Not a counselor, not a dad, not. Literature said, this is books about women. We want you to read these books, Santiago, and I did. I fell in love with those women that cared about children, that cared about their loved ones, that sacrificed. I love them. I no longer love the, the, the heroin addict. I didn't like the prostitute anymore. I had changed. I was really, really sad. And to punctuate my sorrow, as I was going across the yard, the guard behind me said, man, you're really an idiot, man. What a babe that was. What a babe. And I'm like, oh, thank God I'm not this vato, you know, anymore. I used to be this guy thinking she was a babe. But she could break any camera if you try to take a photograph. <laughs> so so that, that, that's the story about the power of literature. And then I went further. I can tell you a thousand stories. But I went further and I thought, well, if they could make that essay come from Chicago to see me, I'll bet you anything I can persuade the judge with a poem to leave the release. <laughs> and it did not work. <laughs> I had all kind of plans, you know. I'm going to write the banker and tell him you need to give me money. <laughs> All right, I'm going to read one more poem and then I'll call it an evening, okay? And then we'll sign some books if you like. Here's one. Um, this really reminds me of all of you people here in Salinas. This really does remind me of you. 
this is a, a camarada of mine who lives in the pueblo there. And, and this really reminds me of you. I, I have a very, very close affinity with the people here because of the land that you cultivate and the work that you do. I grew up that way. But this man says, we have lived upon this land from deep beyond history's records, far past any living memory, deep into the time of legend. The sky of my people and the story of this place are one story. No man could think of the Chicano people without thinking of this land. We will always and are always joined together. Isn't that cool? To be joined with, with, with Earth? I mean, it's a, it's a nice companion to have as you go through life. And who's your friends? Look around you, man. The Earth is my friend. You want to mess with me? Oh. <laughs> I'll call that mountain down. <laughs> you know? Here's that. Here's the, here's the poem. The heart sharpens its machete. This winter has been a mild one. Snow melted away by noon. No heavy gusts toppled elms or cracked cottonwoods. They passed by. The storms, that is. As if I were in a train watching them from the window rushing through. Everyone around me speaking a foreign language traveling away from what's broken, leaving landscapes of war and people starving and refugees waiting for us to help. <coughs> Homes they once lived in and slept and ate in bombed to rubble. That's the kind of winter it was. The heart sharpens its blade and raises a thousand machetes in the streets, each cutting a path through the history of lives by bush, upheld by the law, by the priests, by the teachers, by the TV commercials, by the banks, by the loan officers. I'll tell you right now, it has not been a hard winter. It's been a pretty nice one. The cold didn't crack boughs, didn't split the trunks. There was more cold, more ice and frost between lovers than on landscapes. More mistrust and more suspicion and more prison chains dragged this morning than ever before. And by the river I hear the excruciating cries of Palestinian children who have been starved to death. And I know that this poem can't give them bread. I know that this poem can't irrigate democracy with its blood. It can't make the Constitution come alive. I know it can't heal the wounded in Afghanistan or Iraq. All that this poem can do with its soft voice is not even drown out the patriotic madness, nor abate our lust for blood. All that it can do is whisper from the corner of the Bosque in Mexico, whisper for peace. It was not a bad winter this year along the Rio Grande, but beyond the Bosque, Severe freezing struck the souls of millions. Thank you very, very much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column Podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>